Michael Driver, PhD, Professor of Organizational Behavior at USC, researches ways to approach your career. One approach he calls linear. To the person motivated by the linear concept, success only comes from moving up the corporate ladder step by step. There's a different approach he calls spiral. Success is being able to move from one position to a related but often broader position, usually every five to 10 years. Broadening is key. I'm going to introduce you to a best-in-class Spiral employee. I'm Thomas Law, the Executive Director of the Technology and Services Industry Association. Welcome to Tectonic, the podcast where we explore what makes technology business models successful in today's world. In this episode, we will be discussing the differences in managing traditional service lines like support and PS versus customer success with Dion Hedgepath. Chief Customer Officer at Sumo Logic. And for those listeners not familiar with TSIA, we are a for-profit research institute. We track the financial performance of the largest publicly traded technology providers on the planet. More importantly, we perform deep operational benchmarking with the technology companies that are on the TSIA platform. It is that data that informs the insights you will hear in this series. So let's get right into it. Dion, welcome. To Tectonic, uh, you and I go back quite a while here, and you were, you were actually one of the founding members of our professional service research practice at TSIA, literally like over 17 years ago. And, and what's interesting is you were new to leading PS at that time, which is something we're going to talk about today. But but let's get started here. And first of all, just describe um, you know your your role today. And, and talk a little bit about Sumo Logic and what that company is all about. Yeah, awesome. So super excited to be here with you, Thomas. Yeah, it's been a while uh, and it was so much fun back then. And so excited to tell you about the journey and, and you know, what I've done since. But so um, I am the chief customer officer at Sumo Logic. Um, Sumo, um, what they do is we, we help customers really ensure application reliability and security. So we have this phenomenal cloud native platform. It can take in like massive amounts of data at scale. Um, and it really allows the persona of DevSecOps teams to mm -hmm. quickly analyze, correlate, get insights um, to help them build, manage, and secure their apps. Perfect. And, and so I want to start by going back in time. And I want to go back to the late 1990s. And you were leading customer success at Mercury Interactive in their SaaS business unit. I think it was called Active Watch. Yep. And, and what, what was CS like back in the day? Because it was, you know, pretty much that was that was a new thought. So what was the, the charter of CS? What were the success metrics of the organization? Just kind of give us the landscape. Yeah, so uh, it was 1999, <laughs> to give you okay. some context, right? Uh -huh. well. um, I would say the charter um, and success metrics at the time were like fly by the seat of your pants. Yeah. Because uh, literally there was no one to copy at the time except Salesforce. That was the only SaaS company. And it wasn't even called SaaS at the time that that term yeah. hadn't even existed. And really what happened was, so Mercury had these amazing testing products and mm -hmm. they decided, hey, they're going to get into the APM business, right? And do it as a subscription. Mm -hmm. So we actually had an on-prem version and we had a hosted version called ActiveWatch, um, both okay. on subscription pricing. 
I was leading customer support at the time. I'd been leading it for about four years. For the um, on-prem, I assume for the on-prem. Yes, offer. for yeah, the on-prem right. offering. Yes. And I was asked to go and help build the team in this new SaaS world, mm-hmm. right? So no best practices out there. And I yeah. really only led support, which as you know, is very metrics driven, but more reactive, right? Right. So it was a blast. I mean, we built a a team. We had a really good success in the first year. And as you can imagine, at the end of year one, what happened? Well, we lost a few customers and we were like shocked. Freaking out. Yeah, freaking out. Right. Yeah. And that grief that you feel when you own a renewal number and it's Mm -hmm. the first time, right? We were like, what? what do we do? We need to be able to predict churn. We have to figure out how to make this so sticky. They can't leave. And so again, no one to really talk to, Um, but we built a, what we called a TAM team, Mm -hmm. which would be your classic CSMs today, but the term didn't exist yet. And, you know, just, you know, health, some health metrics and kind of figuring it out from scratch, but I got to say it was the most exciting time of my life. I was yeah. totally hooked on SaaS and yeah. learned so much and just so different going from support to having a team where you're completely tied to revenue. So you're creating this, this you know, incubating this CS capability. And like you said, it's a brand new thought. Where, where did you recruit? I mean, what type of people did you try to bring into that organization? Yeah. So um, our TAMs needed to be pretty technical, but they also needed to be consultative. So mm-hmm. um, we did bring over some of the top people in support that I'd mm-hmm. worked with. Um, we also brought people from more of a professional services background, right? Because there was no CSM yeah. pool to draw from, right, at the yeah. time. Yeah. But really, what we had to do no matter what type of person we hired and what their background was, it was a mindset shift. I actually created a deck to create this mindset shift. When you would recruit somebody in that you would walk them yes. through to say, this is this is what you're going to be part of now. And this is what this role is about. Yes. And it was, the mindset was like, um, like for support, for example, you kind of want to close the ticket and move on. Right. Absolutely. And yeah. what we would tell them is stay on the phone. Like, Ask them why they're why they called and what they're trying to achieve. Stay on and try to teach them something they didn't know before. So mm-hmm. it was so different in terms of caring about the business outcome. Yeah. But it was really awesome to kind of go through that and figure it out. So I want to go back to this, like you said, that you know, even the metrics landscape was evolving, right? So you incubate the CS capability. And all of a sudden, you know, after the end of the first year, you realize that, okay, churn clearly now is a critical metric we got to be focused on. That led to, we've got to have some type of, of, of customer health metrics that are going to, you know, predict, you know, churn. And, and, and so in that instance, you know, for that product, what were some of the things that you gravitated to, to help predict churn? What were some of the early day you know, customer health metrics? Yeah. So we looked at um, how many scripts the customer had um, employed in the software. So mm-hmm. kind of yep. like usage, right? Yeah. So yep. we kind of made up some of those. Um, we did look at support metrics, mm-hmm. how often, how much interaction they had with us, because if mm-hmm. there was no interaction, that wasn't good, Red flag, obviously. Yeah. We did look at some usage metrics, um, but, you know, the instrumentation at that time was kind of that, like That was going to be my next question, because my, you know, my 
gut was going to be, you know, the telemetry had to be almost non-existent because product teams weren't engineering teams weren't focused on that. They they didn't realize that that was a critical, critical capability. So there's, you know, we've made a lot of gains there in terms of that's right. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, no, you got it. Exactly. Um, We did build in the telemetry over time. Mm -hmm. Uh, The engineering team did. Um, But we were lucky because we were on the SaaS side, right? Imagine the on-prem subscription side was a very different. Yeah. Well, and and, and by the way, I mean, come to today, you know, 2022, there are a lot of still on-prem software products that are flying blind, you know what I mean? Or close to blind. And so it's not like that problem has just gone away for, for, you know, for a lot of software companies. So, so let's go back to this spiral motion, right? Because you, you go from support, then you go over to this really nascent thing called CS is it's just really start, you know, getting fired up in the industry. And, and then in 2004, you change roles and you became the VP of services at Mercury where you now have the responsibility for both professional services and education services. And this is, you know, when you and I met when you were starting that journey in, in PS. So describe the challenges in that transition. What was different about leading PS? Yeah. Wow. Um, so, I mean, when I look back, that was just such an important time for me in terms of my learning and really helping me get to where I am today. And mm-hmm. I'll be honest, Thomas, like I, I didn't understand or really maybe even respect the discipline of services until I had to take it over. (laughs) And it was already a big services organization, right? 250 consultants, right? Um, And I'm sure real P&L, which I mean, it was another difference from support and (laughs) CS. CS often, you know, a lot of times is is not really a P&L, but but when you get into professional services and it's expensive headcount there, yeah, you know, that's a PL. You got to figure out, you know, how what you're doing with your margins and you're really trying to get the resourcing right. So it's a it's a real business for sure. God, I learned so much because of all the things you just said. Um, and the the reason why I think I got this role, and I'll talk about Mercury as a mm-hmm. culture later, and you'll understand mm-hmm. why they would do something crazy like that. But you know, the on-prem subscription business had much lower uh, renewal rates than the SaaS business that I was running. Yeah. So yeah. they kind of said, well, Dion, why don't you go figure that part out and get our <laughs> renewal rates up? Yeah. Um, and, use, and, and use PS and ES as basically a capability to do that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But they were confused as to why having a large PS organization wasn't leading to renewal rates. And, mm. and so to go figure that out and, and the truth be told, I mean, the PS consultants we had were awesome. It had nothing to do with the team. Yeah. It's a lot of what we talked about before, which is when you have an on-prem software business and you don't have the telemetry or the usage data, mm-hmm. be predictive and proactive. It's mm-hmm. really hard to know what's going to happen and to build out the motion, right? Yeah. Yeah. Running PS for, for those years really taught me a couple of really important learnings. One is... I was in a lot of customer meetings, executive level customer meeting, loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a huge part of customer success as well, yeah, because yeah. you got to get high because there was no telemetry. So really mm-hmm. it was relationship based that yeah. I had to go figure out like, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to achieve? How's it going? Right. Yeah. Build out the roadmap from there. Um, the second thing PS really taught me, which you had touched on earlier is just 
like forecasting discipline, Mm -hmm. right? Creating mechanisms that drove predictability in revenue, estimated time to completions, building processes so that the PMs could lean in and forecast revenue, close projects up, move them out, right? So we would hit our numbers. And all of this is super relevant to renewal forecasting, actually. Um, Mm -hmm. In fact, a lot of the ways I think about I've built some renewal forecast disciplines over the years, um, but a lot of the foundation is actually very similar to PS. Yeah, you know, and and I, my observation is I, you know, watch uh, executives mature in their their careers, right? And I've been doing this for a while now, uh, and especially if they come up to the services ranks, I think you know, getting that P and L experience is is critical because if you really want to be a broader executive. Right. If you want to be in, a, in, a, in an even larger chair, right, what, what, you know, chief customer officer, or, you know, whatever it is, I think if you don't have that P&L experience, it's tough. For you sure. Gotta, you got to be comfortable owning a number. <laughs> you got, like you said, I, you got to be comfortable and adept at hitting a quarterly number and you, and you got to build that muscle. So I think that's important. The other thing I'll make the comment on is what I think is really interesting right now when it comes to PS, because you're talking about this issue of, of forecasting and predictability. And when it's a project business, as we know, I mean, it's tough because, you know, one project slides, you know, and we didn't hit that milestone, that revenue's, you know, going over. That's why, I mean, you see so many of these PS organizations leaning into annuity revenue models. Right, they basically want to get their customers to say, "Look, I'm going to sign, yes. uh, you know, an annual or a multi-year contract yes. for credits or whatever you're going to use on these types of services." And why? Because that becomes ratable revenue, predictable revenue, predictable ratable revenue, and, and, and <laughs> you know, and that's the future. I mean, that's clearly the future of of, of PS in my mind. Right? I mean, yeah. not that sal-based project work is you know going to totally go away. I'm not saying that, but the more the higher percentage of revenue you can get into that annuity posture, the better, you know, for, for, for the business. I don't think yeah. there's any, any doubt about it. And quite frankly, I think better for the customer because what I'm seeing is, you're, you know, technology companies are coming up to their customer, writing the prescription and saying, look, you really should be on this level of service with us. You're going to need this expertise. And so they budget for it, you know, they use it instead of, oh man, I got to get this big PO through to get this project because I'm dying and I got to get my you know, CFO to approve it. I mean, that's not the best motion for the customer either. So I think you know, yeah. there's a, it's, it's, it's really fun to watch that evolve. So, so I, I'm going to take a little bit of a detour here, but I, I have to comment about you know, Mercury Interactive and what I'm calling the Mercury Interactive Mafia. <laughs> Okay. So, yeah, I've so heard that term. Have you, have you, that, that, yeah. that company was an incubator for some incredible tech executives and thought leaders, no doubt about it. And, and first of all, Maria Manning Chapman, who is distinguished VP of research at TSIA in education services, she came from Mercury. Uh, Christopher Lockheed, yep. who hosts you know, the very popular podcast, which I enjoy, Follow Your Different. He's in a Mercury alum. Um, at, uh, let's say the May conference, I'm going to be interviewing, um, Sue, uh, Barsimian, right? Yep. I think I have that uh, right. One of my best. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and I've, I've talked to her on the, on the phone. I've listened to her, you know, on podcasts. Um, you know, she's an amazing executive, yes. amazing executive. Right. So, you know, there's just, it's just amazing, you know, how many really great leaders, you know, came out of there. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, what was in the water at, at Mercury? Yeah. 
Yeah, first of all, oh my gosh, just hearing you say those names, uh, I just have such a fondness and bond with uh, all of those three people, but just so many. And I think we were all together during these insane growth years. And in fact, mm-hmm. the bond is so strong. I actually went to Sumo because of the Mercury Mafia. So our oh, CEO, really? okay. Mean yeah. Sayer, is a Mercury alum. Oh, there you go. That's Sumo, yeah. The gift that keeps giving. Yep. The gift that keeps giving, exactly. Um, so. You know, when I think about why Mercury was so special, I I think it really comes down to kind of two things. So first of all, it was an Israeli company, right? And there was this kind of like fighter, highly competitive mentality, which Mm -hmm. is so addictive, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. we would choose a competitor and we would like get in a room and go figure out all the ways we would crush them. And, <laughs> and then we would actually put our money where our mouth is. Yeah, we would yeah. change people's roles yeah. and to go lead big programs. So we were mm-hmm. really focused. And so if you were like top talent, you kind of mm-hmm. assume that at some point a senior leader would kind of tap you on the shoulder one day and say, mm-hmm. Hey, we're going to change your role for a year and it's going to be awesome. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So that was one thing that they did really, really well. I think the second thing um, that I've just learned so much and have applied to my own teams over the year is that, you know, they prided themselves with really promoting from within. Mm-hmm. Um, they wanted to take top talent and elevate people we, there was actually this graph, Thomas, that um, got a, yeah, I could show you, mm-hmm. but the X, the X axis was years and the Y axis was career traje- trajectory. Mm-hmm. And we would say, we want people who are on a very steep slope yeah. versus hiring people who got to the same trajectory, but took much longer. Mm-hmm. And then we wanted to catch the top talent on that slope really early mm-hmm. and nurture them and put them into big roles. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I've learned a ton from them um, and try to do that here. I mean, I, I myself just promoted eight individual contributors into management roles this past week at yeah. Sumo and they're going to crush it, you know? Yeah. yeah. You know, I, you know, when I listen to you, um, it reminds me of my tenure at uh, Silicon Graphics. And when I joined them, um, what was that? 92 ish, 94. Yeah. Right around there. They were less than 2000 employees. And, and within six years, they were over 10,000. And they were one of the hottest, you know, companies in the valley. And it's it's amazing. I'm sure there's a lot of listeners don't even know who they are. But you know, SGI built the campus that Google is on. I used to have an office in there. But what you're describing, I think, is really important to our listeners in terms of the opportunities that that get created by growth. You know, that really is the key attribute because Mercury, SGI, in those years, when you're winning in the marketplace. And, and revenues are growing and, and you have a lot of confidence as a management team. It creates all these new opportunities that weren't there, you know, six months ago, a year ago. So you get these re- really quick trajectories in terms of career experiences. And it, it also creates, because you are winning and everyone's having a good time, a really unique bond of people. So, you know, same way I look fondly back at those SGI years and say that that was really some of the, the, the most fun I ever had in tech because we were just having a blast as, as a company. Yeah. And then those are bonds that you keep, you know, forever in, in, in your career. So I, so I think for listeners, you know, not that every company has to be, you know, shooting to the moon or whatever, but, but growth opportunities really do create 
unique circumstances for your career, especially both you and I, we were earlier in our careers when we were in that, hit that growth company. And I think that's like a sweet spot. So if you're a couple of years out of school, maybe you're five years out of school, whatever, um, and, and you're working at a company that is just not growing. I mean, I think you do have to want to look, you want to look in the mirror and ask yourself, okay, what are my opportunities here <laughs> over the next five or 10 years? Or do I really need to be seek, seeking a company that is growing, that's going to open up opportunities for me? And then you can, I mean, go back to it, you know, to a company growing slow or whatever. I mean, you know, it, there's you know not the perfect profile of companies for, for everybody, but I think there is a sweet spot earlier in your career to, if you can get into a high growth scenario, you're going to, you know, accelerate your growth in terms of your yeah. skills. And I would add to that, Thomas, like, cause I see a lot of uh, talent. They, they kind of think of, Hey, I need to switch companies every few years. And what mm-hmm. I would say to them is if you're in a company that's growing fast, you should stay. Like, Absolutely. I mean, oh that it kills me when I, people yeah. leave totally and agree. they could have had you know, I see the VP trajectory. I mean, I am so, yeah, I am so happy that you made that observation because what, 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 and I, and I see this too for, 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 for younger, you know, people out there is you're right. They feel like, well, you know, I was at this software company. I got to go to this other company. I got to, you're right. I get, that's how I'm, that's how I'm going to spiral, right? I'm going to jump companies and, and that's how I'm going to broaden my expertise. But what they're missing is to your point, if you're already in a growth company, Two things are going to happen. Number one, opportunities are going to get created because the company's growing. Secondly, you're going to be in a pole position for these promotions because you're a known entity. So exactly. if you are if you are crushing it and you're competent, you're going to be the first one in the queue. When you join a company, they don't know who you are. You got to rebuild yeah. your you know your your, your street cred at the, at the new company. You're, you're like, starting over. You, you're starting <laughs> over. Why are you doing this to yourself? Yes. It makes no sense. It, oh, it makes me crazy. Yes. Yeah. Now that's. Yeah. I'm really, really glad you you put that on the on the table. All right. Well, let's go back to your to your journey. So you did this. I think eight years leading you know service lines like PS and SS and managed services as well. And then you go back to customer success. And I think this was at a company called Atio, who you know I know. And, and was that an easy? transition to go back into this, you know, SaaS environment and back into customer success and kind of what had changed over those eight years, because you were there when customer success wasn't barely a thing. And now you go back much later and it's now it's been around a while. So tell me about that. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of interesting. First of all, I was, I, I need to get a couple of experiences outside Mercury having said Mm -hmm. that, because I'd been there for 11 years. So I did a couple of other companies um, after Mercury and, Honestly, I just missed SaaS. I mm-hmm. wanted to go back and do mm-hmm. it again. That adrenaline of renewals and churn yeah. and, and watch, <laughs> and I just had to go yeah. back. Um, and so it was interesting. There were a lot of SaaS companies around now, right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. there was a lot of shared camaraderie and people to talk to. And mm-hmm. that's probably the good news. There was right? a community. There's community now. Yeah. There was community. Um, but I would say, again, this is maybe Dion's opinion. Um, I the best practices and frameworks were not very mature. And it was still yeah. 2012. Yeah. Um, I specifically like remember I had coffee with Nick Meta, right? The mm-hmm. CEO. Oh, yeah. It was be- right before he had taken the role, actually. Mm-hmm. And he was just wanted to get my view around customer success and business value and tooling. And that wasn't even a thing yet, right? Yeah. Yeah. Customer success software solutions just wasn't 
well known yet, right? Yep. There were no CSM titles really out there still. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So if you think about it, and like now we're you know 2022, so 10 years mm-hmm. later, it's a lot more mature now. So I, I mean, so it's what you're describing is sort of you know it's not a linear you know improvement curve. It's been more exponential, right? It's kind of started slow. And then for the really the first, you know, 15 years of CS or whatever, not a lot of, you know, really sophisticated tools um, around this. And I, I agree with you that, you know, the last 10 years has been a lot of progress. I would say, again, it's more of an exponential curve. Just even over the last four or five years, yes, I've seen a lot of progress because even like when we started our CS practice and boy, I'm embarrassed. I can't even tell you, you know, how many years ago that, that was, but um, I was shocked at how immature most of these CS organizations were that we were benchmarking, looking at what they were doing. And, and, you know, I, you know, people on this podcast know, I mean, I use this term very often, you know, CS was often a financial art project. It's like, Hey, we're going to throw some people at this thing we are calling adoption. And we're going to hope that that helps with churn. Okay. Go make that happen. (laughs) Okay. Right. Well, what's the financial model? What are the success metrics? Right. What, you know, know, what is the compensation? What is the relationship between CS and sales? I mean, all of these questions that people really did not have deep thoughts on, you know, or proven models on. And I think that has gotten a lot better just over the last four or five years. I I agree completely. Just in the last few years i'm starting to when i talk to people i would say at least half the time they're like oh yes i've done this let's talk about Mm -hmm. health metrics let's talk about ebrs let's talk about right so it's it's good yeah no it's 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 getting a lot better so so now now let's jump up to today where you're the chief customer officer um so so how did all this spiraling right this back and forth from support to cs the ps back to CS? how did that help prepare you for that role yeah, I mean, look, and I first admit, I mean, I know I've been super fortunate to have actually been a part of all the functions that sit in modern customer success org, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, support, services, CS, right? And so um, I don't think you have to, to have my role, but mm-hmm. it definitely benefited, um, again, by staying at Mercury and having the opportunity to actually switch to yeah. every possible CS role yeah, right. in there was great. You know, I think for you to be a successful um, CCO, I think a set of skills that you need to have. I mean, the first one I strongly believe, and this is probably where I advise people the most that are new to customer success mm-hmm. is just starting not with the roles here. I have a bunch of people what to do with them, but really understanding how to map out the customer experience, right. Yes. And yep. doing a work breakdown structure and what, what the activities are to make that customer outcomes the way you want them to be. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I always tell people, Hey, don't start with the roles, start with the activities, then define the org and, yep. And the roles, right? Yep, yep. So that's one thing that I think is really important to kind of have some know-how um, to do. I think just knowing Thomas, a lot of the core CS plays, right, that we mm-hmm. were referring to earlier, health scoring, EB engagement, tools. What do they do for you? What do they not do for you? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, a third one that I applied both at Aptio and Sumo, um, and just strongly believe in is 
I love where the education team fits into the mm-hmm. picture. Mm-hmm. So at both companies, um, I've asked the education leader to take on building out the digital nurture function for the mm-hmm. tech touch yep. segment, because man, they have all these amazing skills at adoption content, right? Right. Yes, absolutely. And so we were able to move really quickly. And then the fourth thing I would say, and you touched on this, is just, man, you have to be good at P&L management, operational forecasting, predictability, um, Mm -hmm. a big part of the role because you typically own a large revenue P&L via services, but also renewals. You know, as as I listen to you, I think, you know, it's really important is that because you did, you were involved in, in things like ES directly, you bring that insight in, into this broader view, right, of, of, of chief customer officer. And so you understand the, the asset of ES, right, the capabilities and what that could bring to the table, just like you understand the strengths of PS and their perspective. You understand the strengths of, hey, you know, an MS type offer. And I think that really is powerful because you can bring these different Lego building blocks together with a deep understanding of what they are and what they aren't, right? And, and as opposed to somebody who gets in the chair and, and they're like, hey man, I, you know, I, I came from, never ran any of those capabilities. Um, they're, I think it's gonna be harder for them to move the pieces around on the chessboard. So I just, just an observation there. The, the other thing you said though, which, which I think is becoming a real theme in a way that has not been true in our industry, it's history, which is, is this true starting with the customer focus? You start, you said very important thing, right? Before I move the pieces around on the chessboard, which I understand that, you know, you know what they can do, what they can't do. First, we're going to start with, you know, with our product, with our offers, with our value proposition, you know, what is the customer experience? How is the customer actually going to interact with us, right? Let's map that journey first, and then we'll, we'll, you know, put the pieces in play. And, and that is not, quite frankly, historically, how we've operated. <laughs> Let's be honest, yeah. we're much more enamored with our product, right? We just, Vanessa and I did a podcast and, and you know, the, the CEO of Nuff said, Chris was saying, he goes, you know, you, you, you got to fall in love, you know, with your customer's problems, not your product. Yeah. That's, that's a great thought, right? And so I think, you know, if you're going to be in that, in that chief customer chair, I think you've got to have that mentality and that's your North stars. We're starting with, you know, how's the customer interacting with us? What's their journey? Now we'll figure out how to, how to map to that. So, um, exactly. yeah, yeah, I think, um, yeah. So I, I think, but that, again, I think good perspective for the listeners that again, maybe aspire to be in that chair someday, you know, what are the kind of skills I'm, I'm going to need? What are, are you know, the, the strengths I'm going to need for that? So I want to talk a little bit, maybe futures here, in where things are going, because we, you know, we've both been in the industry for a while now, um, and you know, we we know the historical models pretty well. But you know, we believe that you know those historical models, some of those traditional borders are going to blur. So, so as you know, I mean, you know, you think about a PS business and that PNL versus in education services business, and that PNL is very different. Everybody kind of optimized, you know, their 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 particular world. Um, and they have very distinct org structures, right, to deliver education versus PS, et cetera. But, you know, in these new offers, and especially, you know, in SaaS and subscription, and when you're trying to drive value realization, you know, you need to have more flexibility 
across the P&Ls, across the, the skill sets and the resourcing. So, so what's your perspective on how service organizations, you know, customer success organizations are going to be structured in the future? Yeah, yeah. And that's, um, so first of all, like kind of what you're saying is the North Star, right? I, I think you you shouldn't just go and say, okay, we're going to have a ES org and they're going to be built a certain way and you're going to have a PS org and you're right. You got to kind of start with what are we trying to accomplish, right? And it will really tell you what are the things you need to do. So for example, at Sumo, we've made a very conscious decision to give education for free. And it's because we have strong correlation that trained users go viral in using and adopting the platform, which leads to growth, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We also have made some specific decisions that we want to lead with a subscription service called premium support, where you get a TAM, right, as part of it. Um, and all of this didn't come from revenues or margins. It came from what is the best thing to drive those outcomes on the journey that we want to create. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in terms of org structure, um, you know, my belief, and we're actually just doing this right now um, in, in, at Sumo, but I believe that you know, it is good to start when you don't have any best practices yet um, to start with a functional org structure. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I do have a VP of professional services. I have a head of CS engineering right today. Yep. But what we're doing now is we're actually regionalizing the teams under APAC, EMEA, and North America now. And it's because mm -hmm. as you get a set of best practices that are good enough, mm -hmm. you get much better leverage by the resources working together and not worrying so much about what name tag says, right? Mm -hmm. Um, yep. giving the regional leaders the ability to, you know, take a TAM and have them play a CSM for an account where the customer really likes them and needs them for a bit, right? And to be able to just leverage um, the experiences that you have in the team. So people, you hear pod structures, yep. right? Same concept. You can take this in North America and create different pods. Many times, I think that is a really good way to think about just like there's a design mechanism of what the role is supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And then there's a execution mechanism. What's the best thing for the customer? So there's a lot there that you just, that I, that I want to click into um, a lot of different concepts, which I think are really salient here in terms of structure and where things are, are going. First of all, you, your comment about, Hey, we've decided to, to have a free ES offer. You know, if you're trying to simply optimize an ESP and L, then you can't, you know, you, that's like a starter conversation, right? But if you're able to bring back the lens and say, wait a minute, what is going to really drive the best economics for, for the company and for the customer? And so I'm a firm believer that we are going to move from worrying about the ESP&L and the PSP&L. And I think that there's really only two P&Ls that are going to matter. I think one, I'm going to call it the customer P&L. How profitable is that customer to us as a company, right? So here's the revenue we take off the table and here's our cost to deliver to that customer. And is that profitable? Yes or no. And, and, and it is stunning how tech companies in general have no idea the profitability profile of customers. They don't know, right? Yeah. yeah they bought this product and I have this service contract and I threw this in, but I had to do this for free, but I got this going on. It's like, well, is that, you know, like, is that a high margin customer, a no margin customer, right? So 
So the, the profitability of a customer is going to matter and the profitability of an offer, right? So we as a company, we have this core offer that you know, offer A here. Again, typically, what are we charging? What does it take for us to deliver that? Do we understand it? And, and then underneath customer P&L, if you will, and offer P&L, are all the pieces, parts required to deliver that, like you're saying. And you want a lot of flexibility in terms of how you're, you're moving things around. So, so we'll see where, where, where they go. But I, I mean, I really believe those are going to be the two winning P&Ls to think about. Um, the, the other thing, you talk about this pod structure, which I think is, is, is really interesting to create the flexibility, again, between service lines. So you don't say, hey, man, I'm Thomas Law. I'm a consultant in this region. I'm in the PS organization. And you're telling me they, they need some CS motions. That's not me. I don't do that. And you go, well, actually, Thomas, you have the skills and you're, you're there and they already like you. They know you, right? You have a relationship. Go run those plays. Uh, you know, I think that that's, that's you know, the, the right thought. But you also said a really important thing because we get this debate a lot between, you know, what should be region and what should be sort of, you know, global. And you said, look, you have to have a core set of some proven practices that you then are seeding out into the regions. And, and I'm a, you know, and we have data, I have data on the org structure survey we do every year. If you take something like customer success and out of the gate, you just say, okay, every region, just go figure it out. <laughs> I'm telling you that is the, and I see it wild, a lot. Wild, wild West. <laughs> that is, that is the losing play because every region is trying to freaking reinvent the wheel and figure out what you've got to give them somebody's got to be building and optimizing your core best practices that, that are being, you know, applied in those regions. So, I mean, I, it always, yeah. I always get scared when somebody says, you know, we just, the whole global thing doesn't work for us. We just kind of blew it up and we're just letting all the regions, you know, do the CS stuff. And oh, by the way, we're just going to have a report to sales. And I just sit there and go, okay, that, that's yeah. like the death, death of your CS organization right there. Yeah, and that I would also add, like, you know, my, even when you regionalize, so we're getting there now, right, it is important to have a practice person yeah. whose sole job is to make sure that the practice and tooling continues to remain the same across all the regions. Bingo. Right? That's absolutely right. I mean, you get yeah. spot on. You've got to have that tie back from the region into some type of global perspective. It's, it, because, again, the value there is, you know, it's not an N of one, right? If it's just a region trying to figure out, hey, what's the best practice for us to build success plans or whatever it is, or to do our, you know, our adoption telemetry. Instead, you have a global team that's saying, look, you know, region A figured out some really good stuff here. And we're going to drive that as a best practice across all the regions. You want yep. those economies as a company. If you're a global company, don't shoot yourself in the foot and start operating like a, you know, a regional <laughs> you know, base company. It may, it just makes no sense to me, but yeah. Or yeah. Totally anyway, so <laughs> what's that? What's that? It's a, we are totally aligned. Yeah, yeah, no. But you know why we're in line? Because we've seen it. We, we have seen this play out again and again. So yeah. The, um, the, so, so one more sort of um, future looking question, and that is around success metric. So again, I, I put two on the table. I think, you know, the profitability of a customer or an offer are going to be uh, success metrics have become more and more important to tech companies. It, you know, when you look at, at again, the, the CS organization or the, the, the service motions, any, any, you know, success metrics you think that are going to be, you know, more emerging here that we haven't historically looked at? 
Um, I, I don't know if these are new, but the way I think about metrics is they they come in two categories, right? Mm-hmm. So the first category are like the ones like outcome-based metrics, right? Gross dollar retention, net dollar retention, net logo retention, yeah, all the yeah. things, the outcomes, right? That yeah. you're- That you have to care about. That you, you have care to care about, mm-hmm. right? You have to, yeah. But really that's a total lagging indicator, right? Mm-hmm. If that's all you're looking at, they're never gonna improve, right? Yeah. Um, so the second set of metrics is really, I, I think of um, the things that you need to measure and push your teams on improving every day mm-hmm. so that the out, the, that'll ensure you get those high retention numbers downstream, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's kind of three that I would say are probably common to every SaaS company. Um, and then there's a bunch that I change depending on where I am, the maturity, right? Mm-hmm. But the three are, you, you've got to have some kind of adoption health metric. Yeah, right? yeah, and that yeah. has to be a stable weighted type of score. Uh, that's my belief so that you can move it up over time and see how mm-hmm. you're improving and you can me- measure their portfolio against it. Um, the second one that I believe strongly, and I'm sure there's some exceptions here, but just measuring exec engagement. If mm-hmm. I've had customers that have amazing adoption, usage, everything, the user love us, new EB comes in and right, they have yeah. a bias or or you get, they get acquired and yeah. there's a new set of execs you don't understand. So that's yeah. always a core that we measure. Yeah. Um, it yeah. is subjective, but it actually is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third one, um, depending on what kind of licensing model you have, is just what's their usage of the license as a percentage of what they bought. And it's because I want to be able to predict dollar renewal. So if they're not using all the license, the renewal may go down in size. Yeah. Yeah. Man, a customer, right? Um, on your executive um, metric there, I think to me, what's interesting on that is that is, has got to be correlated to the fact that the business buyer is, has become so important. So if you think about, you know, you even go back to you know, Mercury's days or whatever, if you were selling mostly to a technical buyer up through the CIO, you know, but, but really maybe even within departments there, and you were lock solid with that technical buyer, then, you know, you, you can have executive turnover, but they were like, look, I don't know anything about that tech stuff anyway. I don't make that call. That That's made you know, by my technical expertise experts, but now so much of tech buying, the business buyer is in the is in the heart of that. They're controlling the budget. They're making the decision. So, if you, to your point, if if you don't have executive awareness that they don't know who you are as a technology provider and how you're adding value to their business, that's what they you got to connect those dots now because then they could turn you off in a heartbeat. And and let's be honest. Um, you know, the double-edged sword of, of SaaS is easy to turn on and easy to turn off, <laughs> yeah. depending on the application, right? And so it's just like, yeah, we don't own this stuff. We, you know, we didn't buy, you know, we're not running this stuff. You know, we want to flip to somebody else. And, and so um, yeah, I think that is, 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 again, something that's different than when we started our careers and, in, in terms of, you know, the health. Of, of the relationship. So, all right, I've got, I've, you know, had a great conversation here. I want to be respectful of your time. I've got one more question I want to ask you. And this is around uh, the Young Men's Service League, which is, I believe you're a member of this and it looks like a really cool organization. I was not aware of it, um, you know, before I was looking at your your, your profile there. So, so tell um, our listeners about the charter of that organization. 
Yeah, so it's, it's a national org. So, you know, if anyone who wants to start a local chapter can, um, and that's what we did. We, um, they started the chapter when my oldest was a freshman in high school. So it's for mm-hmm. high school um, boys, you know, 10th and 12th grade. And really the chart of the organization is to foster mother-son relationships through philanthropy, oh, cool. um, but to also... Uh, teach boys how to run and organize meetings. So there's some professional development pieces oh, there. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty cool. Um, every boy has a role every year, whether it's president, historian, mm-hmm. um, or you're a life skills person that you have to teach a life skill every meeting, like tying a tie, or yeah. as they get older, the life skills change. They they learn how to they talk about how do you tip in a restaurant, things that right. you and I take for granted, but it's yeah, so yeah. cute that they yeah. want to know how to do those things right yeah. the the boys actually by the time they're seniors they run these meetings on their own it's awesome to see they have guest speakers oh, they write thank you notes it's um pretty great my favorite part though is just i was able to spend time with my two sons uh doing philanthropy work yeah that's very it's cool pretty special and you know teaches them some empathy and gives them yeah. a little bit of a view that not everyone has the same you know opportunities that they've had. Yeah. Well, I mean, I really appreciate that overview. <laughs> and again, I was not aware of the organization until I saw that on your profile and I clicked into it. I'm like, wow, this is, this is pretty cool. So I th- definitely wanted you to, to give an overview. So, um, so go check it out. If, if that sounds interesting to folks, cause it looks like it's a, again, really, really good experience for the, for the, for the boys. Great catching up with you. It's been, been too long. And um, if there's any other members of this, you know, Mercury, interactive mafia I should be talking to. Let me know. We'll, we'll get we'll get them on. Um, so I like to close these episodes with my question of the day. And so my question, the big question of the day is successful executives build a portfolio of skills over their career. What new skills will you be playing this year? Thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.